Hello and welcome to the Top Story, a podcast with the headlines of the day from our correspondents around the world. I'm Zhu Tianlu. Coming up in this edition, a four-day truce between Israel and Hamas begins Friday with the release of some Israeli hostages in exchange for Palestinian prisoners. At least 60 people have been killed and thousands displaced across Kenya from heavy rain and floods spawned by El Nino. And China honors the remains of martyrs who fought in the war to resist U.S. aggression and aid Korea with the ceremony in Shenyang. We start with the Palestine-Israel conflict. Qatar, which has been mediating between Israel and Hamas, has announced that a four-day truce between the two sides begins on Friday. It's the first pause in the seven-week-old deadly conflict. A group of 13 Israeli women and children is expected to be released in exchange for several Palestinian prisoners. Qatar's foreign ministry says the number of hostages Hamas will release would rise to 50 over the four days. The truce will also allow additional aid to flow into Gaza. But fighting was still raging in the hours ahead of the truce. Israel said on Thursday its jets hit more than 300 targets. Israeli forces also raided a village near Jenin in the West Bank. In Gaza, the health ministry said at least 27 people were killed in an Israeli attack on a school sheltering displaced Palestinians in the Jabalia refugee camp. The Gaza Health Ministry says more than 14,800 people have been killed since the conflict began last month. Israel's death toll stands at 1,200. Sam Metnik from the Associated Press reports from Jerusalem. There were explosion sounds heard right up until this truce began, as well as overnight. And about 20 minutes into the truce, there was an alert by Israel's army saying that there were potential air strikes near some cities in Gaza. But it is too soon to know right now if it's holding. If it does hold, this would be the biggest breakthrough since the start of this war. And there are many families right now who are cautiously optimistic and hoping that it does go through. The first batch of hostages are expected to to be free. The names of these hostages, as well as the Palestinians. Palestinians on the other side were released. The families of the hostages are aware of who is going to be released, and in general, there are going to be 50 hostages on Israel's side exchanged for 150 Palestinian prisoners. The majority, all of them right now, are women and minors. There is the potential for the ceasefire to extend. There's four days right now of ceasefire, but there's a potential for it to continue with 10 additional hostages being released each day if there is no fighting. Hostage negotiators say that ideally they want to try and get all of the civilian hostages out, and that maybe that could bring them to eight or nine days of a truce. But it still really depends on how these first few days go. There's also going to be no fighting in the south of Gaza. There's going to be no air. Planes over the south of Gaza, and there's going to be six hours a day where there are no planes over the north of Gaza. Part of this deal also does include humanitarian assistance coming into Gaza, which would be a great reprieve, at least in small part, because the humanitarian situation is so dire. That was Sam Menick in Jerusalem. Turning to North America. In the U.S. state of Kentucky, 16 cars of a train have derailed, including two carrying molten sulfur. Residents outside the town of Livingston near the derailment were evacuated, then allowed to return home after a few hours. Sil Callips has more in Washington D.C. The 16 cars jumped on the track. Two of them had molten sulfur. Those tanks were pierced, and a fire broke out, and then sulfur dioxide. 
came from that fire in, involving uh, the molten sulfur. Now, the concern is that is, uh, according to health officials, once you get five parts per million, it can affect your breathing. It can restrict breathing. So obviously a concern. There were 200 families in the area, a very, very sparsely populated area. But you're exactly right about a big American holiday. On Thursday, they, people in the U.S. celebrate Thanksgiving, and that is a big family meal. People come from all over, a major travel day. Day, and we know that 91 of the families chose to be moved to a nearby hotel, and that's apparently where they're going to have to ride out their Thanksgiving Day a holiday. We do know the fire is under control. The other 14 tanks, two of them uh, contained uh, some kind of magnesium, but those tanks were not pierced. The other four were either empty or contained something harmless, such as uh, grain. But obviously uh, a concern when something like this happens, because much of the rail system in the United States is antiquated, and any time there is a train that uh, jumps the tracks, it certainly gets attention officials. They're always worried that the situation uh, could be very significant. In this case, very sparsely populated area. Officials were able to get there, control the fire. Those residents who want to return back to their home in Mount Vernon can. But as I mentioned, a lot of them say, you know what, we've already moved. We moved our holiday meal somewhere else. We're just going to try and uh, ride this out. So hopefully, hopefully, it's just going to be somewhat of a headache for everybody. But health officials have not released the parts per million of the uh, of the of the sulfur in the air there, so uh, obviously going to wait to make sure that that is completely safe before everybody does come back home. They were mandatory evacuation, but the way a mandatory evacuation works in the United States, they go door to door and say you must leave, but. The people don't have to leave. Basically, uh, emergency officials have done their part. They've told people to leave. If they choose to stay, it's on them. That was Sue Callips on the train derailment in Kentucky. In Europe, the continent is still reeling in shock after the Netherlands' far-right Freedom Party defied the odds to top Wednesday's parliamentary elections. The Freedom Party and its leader, Heert Wilders, have previously called for a ban on mosques and the Quran. Wilders faces the task of forming a coalition government with parties that have shunned him. Alex Cadia reports from The Hague. We are the biggest party in the Netherlands. The Dutch far-right Freedom Party has sent shockwaves through Europe, coming out on top for the first time in a Dutch election. The anti-Islam Eurosceptic Heert Wilders and his party will command 37 of the 150 seats in the Dutch parliament. The incumbent party of outgoing Prime Minister Mark Rutte fell to third place. The Labour and Green Party coalition bucked the right-wing trend, picking up nearly 10 more seats than the last election a game that could be crucial in forming the next Dutch government. There's no question that this far-right surge is a big change in Dutch politics, but it doesn't mean that Mr. Wilders will be prime minister. At the moment, he still needs around 40 seats from other parties to have a majority and form a government. And as things stand, he just doesn't have the numbers. Three leaders from the centre-left, centrist and centre-right parties could work together to form a government that cuts Heert Wilders and his Freedom Party out altogether. A move here at Wilders says does not give voters what they asked for. I think that people would not understand and not accept either that if the biggest winner of the elections would not have an uh, important role in that coalition. So um, um, we, have to, we all have to be reasonable, we have to be responsible um, and we have to uh, compromise on many issues to make sure that uh, those votes um, um, are getting worth uh, their money. Wilders, however, will struggle to form a government. 
Franz Timmermans' party, in second place, has ruled out ever working with him or his party. So too has Peter Omzicht, the centrist Dutch MP whose three-month-old party surged to 20 seats. That leaves the outgoing party of government, the VVD, as a possible coalition partner. Their leader, Justice Minister Dylan Yashilgus, says Wilders as Prime Minister is not an option. But that leaves the possibility of a cabinet position for Heert Wilders. What's clear is that the Netherlands has moved towards its political right wing, a move which worries Franz Timmermans' Green Labour coalition. This election had been too close to call, but now that the results are in, coalition negotiations can start. The last negotiation to form a government here took 271 days. So while Mark Rutte is definitely out, it may be a while yet before we find out who will replace him. That was Alex Cadier in The Hague. In South America, Ecuador's new president, Daniel Noboa, was sworn in on Thursday in the capital, Quito, after winning the election last month. At 35 years of age, he is the country's youngest ever leader, taking on the troubled economy and rising violent crime. Dan Collins reports. Daniel Noboa, the heir to a banana fortune, is Ecuador's youngest president ever to lead the country. He was sworn in during a ceremony at the National Assembly. Si, juro. Noboa said he was ready to transform the country. Ecuador has gone through very difficult times. Economic challenges, security challenges and death, real and political. Few candidates were willing to take the risk of this election. For the good of Ecuador and because I have a renewed and young vision, I ran for president without hesitation. Few thought I had a chance. He will face considerable challenges in his one-and-a-half-year term. The young president has pledged to rebuild the small South American country's ailing economy, create jobs and stamp out rising violence created by organized crime gangs linked to drug trafficking. The Ecuadorian economy has faltered since the COVID-19 pandemic, which caused poverty and unemployment to rise and pushed thousands to migrate. Noboa was elected in a special election after former President Guillermo Lasso dissolved the National Assembly in order to avoid an impeachment vote. The heir to a business empire will have just 17 months to govern, completing Lasso's term that will run to May 2025. He won about 52% of the ballot in a runoff vote in October, beating leftist adversary Luisa González. That was Dan Collins reporting on Ecuador's politics. In Africa, heavy rains and floods in Kenya, spawned by the El Nino phenomenon, have killed more than 60 people and displaced thousands across the country. The Red Cross says 33 countries have been affected, mostly in Kenya's coastal and eastern regions. Anastasia Wariru has more. In Kenya's coastal county of Mombasa, entire neighborhoods are submerged by floods. Some residents have been rendered homeless, while others are forced to wade through murky waters to reach their homes. Lots of water flooded our house. I can't rescue my belongings. My kids and I have nowhere to sleep. We really need help because roads have also been wrecked. It has been raining heavily. The floods have disrupted transport and businesses. 
Several humanitarian agencies have been collaborating with the Kenyan government to issue relief assistance to disaster-stricken families. The president has sent me here to assess the situation and ensure everyone gets relief. For the past few days, we have distributed non-food items, approximately about 600 families that we have supported in Mombasa. And uh, in terms of food hampers that we've partnered with county government, uh, we have uh, distributed approximately 4,000. The Kenya Red Cross has been issuing message alerts, urging people across the country to relocate to safer ground. Through aerial and ground missions, disaster response teams continue to probe areas for potential problems. Kenya is in a region where flooding has historically been higher during this climatic phenomenon. The El Nino rains are expected to last until at least April. That's according to the World Meteorological Organization. That was Anastasia Wabiru on the deadly floods in Kenya. Finally, in Asia, China has honored the remains of 25 Chinese People's Volunteers repatriated from South Korea. They were buried on Friday in the northeastern city of Shenyang, a day after their arrival. The volunteer soldiers died in the war to resist U.S. aggression and aid Korea from 1950 to 53. Since 2014, China and South Korea have completed 10 repatriations. The remains of over 900 fallen heroes have returned home since then. Chen Mengfei has details. I'm at the Chinese People's Volunteers Cemetery here in Shenyang. Earlier, a burial ceremony was held for the remains of the 25 soldiers killed in the Korean War some 70 years ago. Their remains and their belongings were repatriated from the Republic of Korea back to China. In attendance were military officers, surviving family members of the martyrs, students from Hong Kong, Macau, and Taiwan. And of course, this event has been watched by people all over China. It's a time for people to remember the value of peace and honor these who sacrificed their lives. And behind me, the wall, and on them are carved the names of some 170,000 people, Chinese people who lost their lives to the war that's known in China as the war to resist U.S. aggression and aid Korea. Now, by estimate, there are about 200,000 people who died in this brutal war, and only 3,000 of them, of their remains and bodies, are laid to rest here in China. Now. A lot of them have names, but a lot of them also remain nameless. For example, this year, among the belongings repatriated was one water bottle with the name Meng Guangtai still visible on it. Now, the authorities and people in society will use that as a clue and also use DNA comparison technology to hopefully identify the remains and help them find surviving families. That was Chen Mengfei reporting. Recapping today's headlines, a four-day truce between Israel and Hamas begins Friday with the release of some Israeli hostages in exchange for Palestinian prisoners. At least 60 people have been killed and thousands displaced across Kenya from heavy rain and floods spawned by El Nino. And China honors the remains of martyrs who fought in the war to resist U.S. aggression and aid Korea with a ceremony in Shenyang. That's it for this edition of The Top Story, a podcast that brings you world headlines every weekday. For more news in politics, business, sports and culture, you can subscribe to The Beijing Hour, a one-hour podcast news magazine program. We welcome and appreciate all ratings and reviews. I'm Zhu Tianlu. Thank you for listening.